0: Let's pray. O Lamb of God, we are all called by your name. What does that mean? How then shall we live? Speak to us in these moments in Holy Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I saw a headline on BBC, on their website. Boy, it caught my eye. Maybe it'll catch your attention as well. Let me put the headline right here. Sheep are one of the most unfairly stereotyped animals on the planet. Almost everything we believe about them is wrong. Come on. Are you talking about sheep, like the sheep I know? I mean, come on. This is the sheep I know, right? And we're all wrong? Well, what is it you think about sheep? I think most people, when they think about sheep, think about a dumb. Defenseless creature that spends all day. Nom, 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 nom. Most people think that what sheep are good for is you, you, you either eat your sheep or you wear your sheep. That's what the sheep are for. Wrong. Turns out, highly intelligent. In fact, a scientist in China. His name, Keith Kendrick, in one of the universities there, found that sheep can recognize... Hold on to your pew. Sheep can recognize and remember at least 50 individual faces for over two years. Most of us can't even remember them for a year. The sheep got them down for 50. Wow. In his tests, uh, they, they would hold the faces up. Faces the sheep knew, or they didn't know, and by the sheep's vocalization, bah! somehow that little bab indicated how they responded to the to the to the face that they're seeing in the picture. Turns out, sheep are actually quite emotionally attached kind of creatures. They did another bit of research down here, in uh, out there in the University of California. They studied rams. That would be male sheep, okay? They studied rams for three years and discovered. Number one, they build friendships. Number two, they look out for one another in times of need. And number three, they stick up for one another in fights. This is an animal with a heart. And by the way, they found out these sheep, they can tell the difference between a smile and a frown. And they prefer smiles. (laughs) Didn't your mother tell you that? Come on, smile more, girl. Smile. Yeah. In fact, they've even learned that sheep feel sad when their friends are sent to slaughter. I mean, wouldn't you be sad if your friends were sent to slaughter? Mm -hmm. And, of course, Holy Scripture, we know, is replete with sheep. Sheep, sheep, sheep. They're everywhere. But today we've not gathered to think about the animal sheep. For a few moments, let's consider together the human sheep. We've got a heartbreaking tale that we must relive with a life saving truth. A tale in three acts. Act one starts right now. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Not putting a verse on the screen, so you're going to have to follow along in your Bible or your device. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Are you finding it there? It opens with these words. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan, that would be the prophet, to David, that would be the king. Very interesting about that little word sent intentionally placed right there in that line. You know why? Because the first half of this heartbreaking tale has sent, sent, sent a dozen times. Sent appears. In fact, let me run a a handful of them by you. David went up on the palace roof one evening, and he saw a woman taking a bath, and he sent for her. A few weeks later, she sent the king a message. I'm pregnant. So David sent a message to the battlefront with this order. Send Uriah the Hittite home for R&R. After Uriah comes home, the king sent a gift to the house to welcome him there. Because David's commander, Joab, dutifully sent the woman's husband home. But Uriah didn't spend the night with his wife. He spent it at the entrance to the palace where the other king's servants were sleeping. He slept there. For two days and two nights, David desperately needs this man to sleep with his wife so that this baby will be assumed to be his. Finally, David sends the unsuspecting husband-warrior back to the battlefront with clear instructions to Joab to have him killed accidentally. It worked intentionally. Joab then sent word to the king that his order had been obeyed and the Hittite warrior had been killed in battle. Then David sent for the widow pregnant with his child and married her." The very next line, and the Lord sent, because if you're sending, I can send. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb." That's a little female lamb. (laughs) One little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, and it drank from his cup, and it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. You see, David knew what researchers found, that the sheep have very emotionally aroused hearts. They, they attach to the human that owns them, that shepherds them. And that little lamby, it was like a daughter to him. Robert Alter, in his one-man translation of the Hebrew Bible to English, points out that the three actions of the poor man, he feeds the sheep, the sheep drinks from his cup, and the sheep sleeps in his arms." Alter points out that, in fact, those were precisely the three actions that David ordered Uriah to take. Go home. I want you to eat with your wife. I want you to drink with your wife. I want you to sleep with your wife. Same three actions subtly embedded in the tale, and David has no clue that the tale's about him. Have you noticed that when you have a guilty conscience? Surely you notice this. I have. You try to overcorrect in the area of your failure. At least now I'm going to get it right, and that's what's going on here. David is going to overcorrect. He has what, uh, what Alter calls compensatory zeal. I mean, after all, the king is supposed to protect his subjects. He is the defender of justice, but he has done precisely the opposite. He has killed one of his subjects, and he has impregnated the other subject. Verse 5, David burned with anger. You know why? He's a shepherd boy, that's why. Little David, play on your harp. Hallelujah, hallelujah. This is the little David. He knows his sheep. His heart burns with rage. Give me that man, Nathan. Give me that man. I'll take care of him. Restitution first, and then I'll kill him. The prophet looks into the agitated countenance of the king, and he leans in, and he says, You are the man. And before David can catch his breath or recover, quickly the prophet goes on with a message from God. Then, verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you from the hand of Saul, did I not? I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms." The custom was to do that. He did it because Saul only had one wife. God is saying, I took care of you. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why didn't you come to me? Tell me what you need. You." the man. You killed. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You did it. Don't tell me. Others did. You killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. That's how you did it. Now, therefore, listen to me, O king. The sword will never depart from your house, because you despise me, and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. She is never called Bathsheba. In this message from God, she is never Bathsheba. She's the other man's wife. There is no name for her. She didn't belong to you. You are the man. Listen to me carefully. Verse 11. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you before your very eyes. I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. And guess what? That's exactly what Absalom did. He went onto the very same palace roof in the in the middle of the day, and he brought in the king's wives, and he slept with them in front of a gawking nation to prove, I am the king now, and these women are mine. You are the man. You did it in secret, verse 12. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before before all Israel. Act 1. Condemnation. You and a man. Act 2, verse, thir- verse, verse 13, and David said to Nathan, the king who has collapsed in his throne, realizes it's over. It's all over. <sighs> what does he say? I have sinned. Against the Lord, not against Uriah, not against Bathsheba. I did this to God. You're right. You are the man and you did it to me. Act two, confession. And in this three act tale, here comes Act three. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. You will not die. Commutation, Act Three. But an innocent one will die in your place. <laughs> you say, "Wait a minute, God, God! Please, time out, time out. Give me a break. You can't be serious. An innocent." baby pays the price for a guilty king. That is not fair. And you're right, of course, it's not fair. An innocent innocent baby dying for a guilty king or an innocent king dying for his guilty children. The gospel is not fair either. It's never been about fair. It's been about guilt and deserving to die. And an innocent one stepping in and saying, I will die for her. I will die for him. (laughs) Wow. That's why they call the gospel good news, ladies and gentlemen. The undeserving guilty, having their sentences commuted through the death of an innocent substitute. Here they are, the three acts in the gospel according to Nathan. You have to move through these three, and so do I. Nobody gets a get-out-of-jail-free card. Here are the three acts. Act 1, condemnation. You're the man. Act 2, confession. I have sinned against the Lord. And Act 3, commutation. You are not gonna die, but an innocent one will for you. Wow. This is how it works with you and me conscience comes in and says, you're guilty. You are the man. Confession, hopefully awakened in a desperate heart, I have sinned against God. In Act 3, okay? You're not going to die, but an innocent one will for your judgment. Wow. Isaiah 53, verse 6. Oh, we, like sheep... There's that animal again. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who is this we that the gospel prophet speaks of? Who is this we who have sinned and whose sins have been placed on the innocent one? Who is this we? It is you, and it is I." F. B. Meyer, in his book Christ in Isaiah, gets uncomfortably pointed. We all know, he writes, the sense of sin. Oh, don't we all? The sense of discord, of distance and alienation from God. We, s- we feel it. We existentially experience it behind all our suffering. Isn't this true? We feel there is a secret which somehow must explain and account for this feeling. There's something behind this. We have scorned and we have perverted that which was right. We have done things we ought not or have left undone things we ought to have done. Men try to evade this. Women try to evade this consciousness of sin. They plunge into affairs like David and Bathsheba. They travel from land to land. They go far afield in search of adventure and ceaseless change, just change, self-medicating, taking place, trying to hide me from this tormenting conscience. They give themselves up to gaiety and to dissipation. In fact, they are ever eluding the fixed gaze of conscience that never blinks. It never blinks. It just stares at you. They're adopt, they're, they adopt any subterfuge which promises a moment's cover, some sort of distraction, please. But it comes back again and again. The prophet voice arraigns us. The inerrant sleuthhound, the bloodhound, runs us down. I got you. Thou art the man. You are the woman. I'm talking about you. All oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of you and the iniquity of me. Who is this he? We are the we, who is the he? The very next verse, Isaiah 53:7, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We know who the he is. Not only are we like sheep, he is a sheep. And we know what to do with a sheep like this. They did long ago. They would place their left hand on that woolly head and then lean, lean with the left hand. And while they would lean against that innocent creature, they would confess the sin. They would admit the sins that have brought them to this sacrifice. And then with that hand, with the free hand, they take the knife and slit the neck, and while that innocent creature dies, they pin it to the ground until it is deceased. And when it is deceased, then the carcass is placed on an altar, and it is burned as a substitute for the sinner who has just confessed her sin." I want to suggest maybe, that if we had to perform this ritual every time we morally melted down, we would surely think twice about that sin that is our favorite. Why would I want to keep doing this? Because like David, we are as guilty as sin. And like David, we need the son of David to take away our sin and commute our death sentence. Somebody came through line after first service. Her name is Ruth. Ruth Hood. She came through line. She said, you know, that was, I've, I've been just brooding on that since we did this little study together. Isn't that amazing, Dwight? I never thought of this before. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, David, had two sons. Who died for him. And they were both innocent. Two sons who received his judgment in his place, both innocently dying for his guilt. The baby and the Savior. Both of them died for David. Oh. What are the words of that preacher? Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who's this he? This him? John the Baptist thunders from the wilderness. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." (laughs) I would love to hear an amen right about now. Come on. You got to mean it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's why we've gathered this morning. To have Him take it away, purge it away, wash it away. What is stained in our conscience Welcome, fellow sinners. Welcome to the Lord's table. We are about to experience in multimedia the salvation we seek so desperately. That's why I want to invite you with me as the last part of this homily now. Before it ends, let's read the prayer of David together. Psalm 51. You have read it before, but we're going to read it out loud together now. Yes, we are. Psalm 51. You may never have read it the way you're going to read it now because of the backstory that is embedded in your mind. Psalm 51. I'm going to read it out loud. And I'll put the words on the screen. Psalm 51. It begins with a preface, the longest preface in the Psalter. for the director of music. A psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, Nathan leaves the throne room. The king has melted down in tears, a broken heart. He cannot forestall the judgment. It will still fall. But he cannot bear the thought of being cut off from the God who is. gone on loving Him. You will not die. Mercy. Let's go read it out loud together, please. Out loud together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to Your unfailing love. According to Your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. And I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. (laughs) Patriarchs and Prophets ends this heartbreaking tale with this promise of hope. Oh, I love this. Whoever, under the reproof of God will humble the soul with confession and repentance, as David did, may be sure that there is hope for him, there is hope for her. Whoever will in faith accept God's promises will find pardon. The Lord will never cast away one truly repentant soul, to which I say, amen and amen, never will he cast away your repentant heart if you give it to him. Let us pray. Oh, God. Hear the prayer that we have just prayed. Here at the foot of the cross, our plea is simple. Purge us. Cleanse us. Wash us whiter than snow because of Jesus, our Lamb. And restore to us, please, the joy of your salvation in Christ's name. Let all the people say, Amen. Amen.